Let's jump back into our series, Why Church? If you ask people, what's the most important day of your life? Many will say it was a day that they made a sacred and lifelong commitment to the person that they loved, their wedding day. This is a picture from my son's, my youngest son's wedding day back in January. It was a pre-COVID wedding. We didn't know it at the time. I, I love it because of all the, the, the color and the bridesmaids. There's, there's like four more on each side yet. And the, and the, the groomsmen and, and, of course, the, the, the groom and the bride. And that's my friend Terry Lewis officiating the wedding. It was really a glorious day. And so much preparation goes into that day. And thankfully, they prepared well, not only for the ceremony, but also for their hearts for marriage. Let me tell you the story of another couple named Brian and Catherine. Brian was 24, Catherine was 22. They met in college, fell in love, and decided to get married. And they also prepared tirelessly for their ceremony. Like my son and daughter-in-law, secret was buried away. Catherine also felt numb and disconnected after these arguments. The sex they had didn't seem to fix it. The sex actually heightened her sense of disconnection. If she could have talked about it with Brian, she would have understood that he felt the same emptiness. Now, when she felt that emptiness, she learned she could get a quick shot of energy through flirtation at the office. Other men found her attractive, and she knew how to play the game to garner their attention. It didn't have to lead anywhere, and Brian wasn't around to witness it, so it was her own secret vice. Well, the wedding day and the party finally came. Every vendor prepared, every bill paid. It was a beautiful day. You ought to have seen the pictures. Cost mom and dad $50,000. Problem is, Brian and Catherine were not spiritually ready for the most important day of their lives. They were unprepared. Their wedding day was magnificent. Their marriage was a disaster. Now, the story of Brian and Catherine, I've made up. Though no doubt it is real to life. I tell it to illustrate how followers of Jesus, we too can be spiritually unprepared for the most important day of our lives. You see, the Bible, in the Bible, the church is called the bride of Christ. And Jesus is the bridegroom. He is courted and won the love of his bride. When Christ returns to the earth to wrap up human history, the bride will be married, so to speak, to the bridegroom. In Revelation chapter 19, the Bible describes a future wedding feast called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, is Jesus. And so a question for us this morning, on the most important day of your life, the day you will meet your bridegroom, will you be ready? Will you be prepared? Now, Jesus told many parables using this metaphor of marriage, and the parables are directed towards, it seems like, to non-Christians, and many of you are familiar with these. 
But this morning, I'd like to deviate from that pattern and address this metaphor to believers because our readiness still matters. On that wedding day, we should say that Jesus is not going to reject true believers who are unprepared. They will still be saved. But their lack of readiness will impact their joy and their reward in the age to come. Though God will make us holy and perfect on that day, he still expects us to make progress during this life. If you're sleeping with the world, if you're flirting with the world, if you are excusing greed or sexual immorality or rage or racism, imagine the shame and the loss and the regret that you'll feel that day. It matters. Well, the passage we'll look at in a moment makes it clear that Jesus did not save us only to go to heaven, but in order to make us holy. Now, we've been asking this question throughout the series, why church? And the answer today is this, only the church can prepare us to meet Jesus. And the text that inspired me this morning uniquely is from the same book we've been drawing from, Ephesians chapter 5. And turn with me there if you would. You can on your Bible app or if you brought your own Bible. As you get there, Ephesians 5 is the, the most explicit text in the Bible, giving instructions to Christian couples. It's used often in marriage ceremonies. Yet as Paul wades into this instruction, he can't help but look beyond it. He sees marriage as a sign, as a picture of our union and intimacy with Jesus. Let's go ahead and read the passage, and I'm going to start at verse 25. Would you stand, please? Let's read God's word together. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Amen. This is God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Did you notice how Paul intertwined the two? And at the end, he seems more interested in the sign than he does the actual instructions. He's so, his imagination is so captured by it. A husband is to love his wife the way Christ loves the church. The husband is to take the relational and spiritual initiative in the life of his bride and the entire family, for that matter. Christ's goal in the same way is to prepare us to meet him, to present 
us to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Circle that word, holy. It seems to capture the spirit of this passage. Holiness is the overwhelming goal on that day. And God uses the church to bring about that holiness. As a matter of fact, the quality of holiness is so integral to what your experience on that day will be, whether it will be shame or whether it will be joy. And yet holiness, holiness in the church is so misunderstood and holiness is scandalized in our culture. So I'd like to take the rest of my time this morning and address four myths about holiness and to reset it in our minds so we can pursue it day by day. Here are the four myths. One, holiness is abnormal. Number two, holiness is individualistic. Number three, holiness is joyless. And number four, holiness depends on me. Pray with me, and we'll jump into these four. Father, now in Jesus' name we pray that we could be aware of your presence in this room, and we could put aside whatever internal distractions is in our mind that might prevent us from truly listening this morning and truly receiving the gifts that you have arranged for us to receive through the Holy Spirit. Help us to listen. Give us faith and power to obey and connect us together as a body. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you ready? Let's do the first one. Holiness is abnormal. Think of the way we even use this word, holy. We think of holy people as strange, excessive, impractical. Some refer to clergy or priests as the holy man, as if they were some different kind of human. At other times, we admire the holy person, but from a distance. We call them saints. We put them in stained glass windows or on top of our dashboards. We lionize them like Mother Teresa, but in the same way, we deem them as abnormal. They're not real human beings. Edmund Clowney wisely points out that beneath our scorn, our hero worship, lies a guilty avoidance of what it means to be holy. He writes, to be holy is to be genuinely human. For holiness is godliness, and life without God is life without meaning. Now, we should ask at this point, what is holiness? Well, if we go back first to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, holiness is related to purity, to being clean, to avoiding that which pollutes the soul. But the quality of holiness was never intended to be independent of a relationship. Holiness is what allows us to relate to God. We are called to be holy as God is holy. Now, we can't imitate God in his eternal qualities. We can't be all-powerful, for example. But we can imitate the qualities given to us as created beings 
in his image. God is a promise keeper, for example. So to be holy or godly is to be a promise keeper in all of our relationships. Since we are called to be holy, holiness is not abnormal. Rather, to be holy is to be fully human, to be fully alive. Holiness helps us discover our true potential as we live in the rhythm of our created purpose. Saints are not only to be admired, but to be imitated. Okay? Holiness is abnormal. It's our first myth. Here's the second myth. Holiness is individualistic. Now, where do we get this cultural narrative? You know, I wondered about this, and I think perhaps it is due to the near worship given to holy men who, in centuries ago, who radically separated themselves from the world, often living in seclusion and isolation away from people. Like the 5th century monk, Simone the Stylite, who lived for 37 years on a small platform on top of a pillar. Or, in the 4th century, Anthony of the Desert, who spent decades in seclusion. People would travel hundreds of miles to see these men. Their counsel and their advice was treasured. Now, hundreds of years later, we draw on these caricatures, drawing a simplistic cause and effect that the further withdrawn from people, the more isolated, the more spiritual, the more holy. Now, to be fair, some of these images in our mind are exactly that. They are caricatures. Both of these men at times had dynamic ministries to people. As a matter of fact, Anthony, for example, uh, in the early part of the 4th century, uh, the Roman Emperor Diocletian unleashed the worst persecution on the church during the Roman Empire. And Anthony would often visit imprisoned believers, making no effort to do it secretly or to disguise himself. But going back to the caricature in our minds, does separation equal holiness? Sometimes, you know, I get frustrated in my role as a pastor, and I say to myself, ministry would be really cool and fun and great if it were not for the people. I'd love to just go separate myself at times. Yet to be holy is to be like God, for God is love. You cannot be holy without love. Growing in holiness is growing in love. Holiness does not cause us to withdraw from people, but to move towards them. You know, the church ought to be a training center for love, a warehouse of relational skills where you back up your truck and pallet after pallet is placed on your truck of relational skills and language and know-how and knowledge. The church ought to be a place where the very language people speak is shaped by love, like love languages, like listening for heaven's sake, like grace-based parenting, like cherish, like Jonathan, David, Jonathan and David friendships, 
These go-to trainings and models reveal what love looks and feels like. You know, there are these yard signs all over town called Signs of Justice. And they read something like a creed since they begin with, we believe. We believe science is real. We believe no person is illegal. We believe water is life, and on and on. I'm sure you've seen them. One of the beliefs is we believe love is love. And love is certainly an ideal, but what does love look like? You know, there are many disputes on which both sides equally appeal to the quality of love. Who is right? Who is wrong? Is it love to arbitrarily choose one side over the other because that is my personal opinion or because that's how I feel? Is that love to do that? You know, the Bible rises above this self-contradictory relativism. The Bible rises above this, giving us the definition of love anchored in the very character and person of God. The Bible demonstrates to us what love really looks like in its most glorious moment, the pinnacle of the Bible, the cross of Jesus Christ, where self-sacrificial love is defined and shaped and modeled for us. God is the author and definer of love, and since he knows beginning from the end, he knows what kind of love produces human freedom and human flourishing. The church, if functioning properly, teaches us to love everyone and thus propels us down the pathway of holiness, preparing us for meeting our Savior, right? The greatest of all lovers. Again, Edmund Clowney said this, growth in true holiness is always growth together. It takes place through the nurture, the work, and the worship of the church. Let's go to our third myth. Holiness is joyless. Now, where does this caricature come from? Well, I think part of it comes from the caricatures of early America and Puritans in early America. Puritans, you learned in your history class, they're identified more with frugality and witch hunts. They're known for being excessively prudish and stuffy. They don't conjure up in our minds joy. Now, Douglas Wilson, who is a scholar uh, uh, on this type of area, in this area, says some of that criticism in the later generations of Puritans is fair, but for the first and early generations, it is not a fair characterization of the Puritans. Wilson writes this, The first Puritans really were liberated. They were seriously joyful, which is a form of being serious, I suppose. And because they wanted their whole nation to experience this joy, they were total Christians. They brought the words of Christ to bear on everything. Their joy was infectious, their talents prodigious, and their logic unanswerable. You see, according to the Bible... This is the way God designed it to be. The truly holy life is a life of joy. Look at the introduction in the book of 1 John. John, 
the friend of Jesus, the apostle, writes this, verse 3 and 4 in chapter 1. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, some manuscripts say your joy, and therefore some translators uh, say it's our joy. But where does that joy come from? It comes from our fellowship. And the fellowship is not simply shared activities. It is rather Christians sharing in the very life of God. You see, as believers, our unity and oneness certainly begins with our faith affirmation that we believe Jesus is the Christ. But our unity is far deeper than that. Our oneness, begin, our oneness continues with the reality, the spiritual reality, that Christ lives in us. Christ lives in you. Christ lives in me. If I tear you down, I'm tearing down Christ. If you tear me down, you're tearing down Christ. We share in his life together. This is the theological basis of our oneness, shared life, spiritual life in Christ. This shared life in Christ as a basis of unity is more important than race or ethnicity or political beliefs. John says we begin this experience by having fellowship, our communion, our union with the Father and the Son. What does John mean by that? Again, I know it doesn't mean, I know one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that John and the triune God are sharing a potluck together or discussing the weather together. No, it's a spiritual union in the same way we share of the same spirit. Listen to what Tabidi Anababwe says about fellowship. He says, this is why fellowship cannot be fundamentally reduced to a set of activities, a set of programs, or a set of do's and don'ts. In essence, through fellowship, the Lord's life pushes us, propels us, and draws us to joy, great joy, built through relationships, not structure. This fellowship here and here cannot be shared outside of the life of the church. As the Lord's life moves in through the church, we have more knowledge, we have more power to be holy and to love freely. This is yet another reason why the church is uniquely designed to prepare you for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember that word radiant we looked at? Our scripture said that Jesus wants to present his church, his radiant church to himself. Listen to the words similar to radiant. Healthy, glowing, beaming, sunny, happy, joyful, ecstatic. Holiness is not joylessness. Let's go to the fourth myth. And that is that holiness depends on me. Where does this narrative come from? Well, we have found our caricatures of 
holiness from saints and holy men and mystics and Puritans. In all of them, we are tempted to believe they are different people, strange people, because they have some natural disposition towards discipline. Are they, they have some superhuman resolve that average people like you and me just don't have. We believe this subtly and unconsciously because we believe the fallacy that holiness ultimately depends on me. So in our buried guilt, we turn them into something abnormal. But what if we were honest to God, and what if we asked the question that lies buried deep inside every human heart? What if the question we asked is, when God says, be holy like I am holy, what if we were honest and said, God, there is no way I can do that. How can you even ask? That is impossible. There is an impassable chasm between you and between me. I cannot meet your perfect standard of righteousness. That is the human question. Righteousness, by the way, it means, the, it means perfect action, and not just perfect action, but perfect action flowing from a perfect attitude and perfect love. This call to holiness only brings us despair, doesn't it? It only brings anguish. It only brings gloom to our hearts. Because we know it's impossible. We know we're lost. But here's the surprising thing. It is God's desire that you taste this despair. And we must taste this despair if we are to know our true selves. Because only when we know that we are thoroughly, radically unholy, like an infection that goes through the entire body, only in this recognition can we begin to see how much we need God, and only then can we see the true purpose of Jesus. Jesus was human, yet sinless. In other words, he was holy and pure. He rejected all that was wrong and unjust. And unlike us as a human being, he kept his heart clean from the things that pollute the soul. And yet for that he died. Jesus died voluntarily, giving up his life in a great transfer of sorts. In other words, the holy died for the unholy in order to give the gift of being holy to those who could never attain it for themselves. In this transfer, Jesus gives you his holiness, his standing, his approval before the Father. In spiritual union with him, he becomes your holiness. This is the power that Christians have. This is the hope that permeates everything about who we are. We know as Christians we will never attain absolute purity or holiness while on earth. Yet with this hope, we never stop pursuing it. Christians believe by faith that today and now, holiness describes our position before the Father, and it will be fully realized in the future. This is what John Owen in the 17th century wrote. Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing the gospel in our souls. So these are our four myths 
about holiness? How do we apply this? How do we make this now? You know, what difference does it make? Let me just share a few things for a couple moments. My goal this morning has been to help you do a reset, to recapture a vision of holiness by knocking down the barriers that make it unattractive or seemingly abnormal. Jesus is working every day to make you holy, to set you apart, to make you pure for his work, for his kingdom, and most importantly, most importantly, most importantly, to prepare you for the most significant day of your life, the day that you will see him without shame. Knowing this call, are you pursuing holiness today? Or are you sleeping with the world? Are you flirting with temptation? It's interesting in Ephesians 5, what does God say? What does Christ say is the most significant means by which he makes us holy? Go back just for a a brief moment and look at verse 26 in Ephesians 5. It says that he might sanctify her. He might set her apart. He might make her holy. How? Through the cleansing, through the washing of the word. It is through the cleansing power of his word. It is through the ministry of the word. It is the ministry of the word getting into our lives. And it is not just hearing the word. If it was just hearing the word, all of us could just listen to our favorite podcast on demand and listen to the best communicators across the world. If that was all it was, then we wouldn't need the church. But no, we need others to actually help us get the word into our lives from here to here in practical and concrete and meaningful ways to grasp what it looks like to follow Jesus. We need examples of how it looks like to bring God's word into our daily, everyday experience. And yes, finally, we need accountability. We need accountability. And that only comes through participating in a local church. Do you think that you can face the pressures of the world alone? Do you not realize the world is bent on conforming you around its own narratives? You better believe it is. You know, the church at large, the church at large has lost its vision for holiness. The slow, the often tedious, ordinary work of character formation has become secondary to growing superstar churches, to over-the-top displays of spiritual power, or to winning the culture wars. And though as Christians we seek a voice, and we should seek a voice in our culture, our voice has been seriously weakened and compromised by the lack of holiness in the church. Political scholar Yuval Levine, uh, in a New York Times essay, says that pastors matter more than presidents. Now, I know that sounds self-promoting and self-serving, but just stay with me for a moment. Levine's article that was written before the election was titled, 
Either Trump or Biden will win, but our deepest problems will remain. And he argues that a president cannot fix our deepest problems. It's interesting what he says. Now, he's not writing as a Christian. He, say, he writes this. He says, these problems, he contends, have been adding up to something of a social crisis, evident in not only the breakdown of our political culture, but also in isolation and despair. At the heart of our pervasive, our pervasive crisis of alienation are widespread failures of responsibility, deep-seated cultural divisions, and a deadly dearth of solidarity. So what's the solution? Well, again, of course, presidents and politics matter. But what if what, if what is broken down is fundamentally communal? fundamentally neighborhood, institutional, then the solution must come at that kind of basic communal level. And so Levine challenges ordinary people to ask, what are our roles demanding from us in this key moment of history? What's demanded of us? What's demanded of you and me in this key moment of history? Here's what Levine says, often what the demand, he argues, is restraint and responsibility, doing your job rather than building your brand. And implausible as it may seem, our country is starving for such straightforward integrity. You know, some of you may have wondered with the world burning down all around us from political turmoil, from racial strife, a worldwide pandemic, you might be wondering, why are you preaching on the church? And again, though Levine is not a Christian, he's got his pulse on something. You know, we as believers, right, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ought to be the ones who are leading the way in not worrying about building our brands, but leading the way in living lives of responsibility and lives of straightforward integrity and giving ourselves to character formation and the pursuit of holiness, that's why we're talking about the church. Because it is the church that empowers us to do this. You know the word holiness and integrity are actually related. Did you know that? Holiness means, part of holiness means a whole. And what is the root of integrity? It is integer. It means completely integrated. It means one. His call for straightforward integrity is similar in a secular way to our call for individual and communal holiness as a body. Let's recapture that vision. This is where change in our heart begins, and it'll be the way that we bring change to our culture. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I know there's so many things on our hearts, so many things that we're concerned about, so many things we wonder about. But Father, in the middle of all of the distractions, in the middle of the things that weigh us down, there is a freedom and there is a joy 
And there is a power in hearing your call, be holy as I am holy. Thank you for our position through Jesus that you declare us holy and blameless in your sight. Father, now let us live it out. And we do look forward to that day of seeing you, Jesus, at the consummation of that wedding day and sitting down with you at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And Jesus, we want in that day to be filled with joy and not shame. We pray that you would lead our church and lead our body in such a way, in such a way that you would cause us, Lord, to look forward anxiously to that day and be prepared and be ready for it in the everyday pursuit of being holy as you are holy. Help us not to listen to the siren call of this world, but may your voice be all the louder in our hearts and in our spirits. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Just go ahead and stand, and we'll finish with a, a blessing. You know, this theme of being presented to the Father is all throughout the New Testament. If you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere. Paul always had that in his imagination and in his vision of, why am I doing what I'm doing? So that one day I'll present you, me and us together, present you before the Father. And indeed, at the end of the book of Jude, a beautiful doxology that pictures this day. Let's use it for a blessing. And you, if you'd like, raise your hand so as to receive the blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before time and now and forever. Amen. 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 Again, don't forget to wear your masks, <laughs> and God bless you.